You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is good to be with you as we gather together as the church. And I am overwhelmed at God's grace towards us as the church this morning. I don't know about you, but during times of worship, my heart often leaps and bounds and feels the weight of the cost of that grace. And this morning is no different. I feel overwhelmed because of what Jesus has done for us. And that God would love us so much that he would send us a Savior, a perfect one. Not just to bring us into subjugation, not just to bring wrath, but to bring us grace and mercy in glory in the face of Jesus. And we get to behold that glory for the rest of eternity. And those who have gone before us are there already worshiping and are cheering on the Savior, our Lord Jesus, because his name will be made famous in this place. His name will be made famous in this world. And he has called us to be a part of that. And it is not easy. He never promises that it will be easy. It is a battle continually. It is a war, and we are at war as believers, not with those who are not Christians, not with those who are of different political views or persuasions. We are at war with a true enemy who is more than formidable, one who is mighty in so many ways. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. Although our enemy is real, our Savior is greater. And we have a God who has already defeated the enemy. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated sin, death, and hell for us on the cross of Calvary. When he died in our place, he wiped the slate clean in the eyes of the Lord. When he sees us, if we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are seen as perfect and pure and holy before a God who loves us so much he would give his perfect son for sinners such as us. We worship a good, holy God. And only a holy God could do what he has done. And only a holy, righteous, good God could overcome our sin in the blood of his Son on the cross. We worship a good and holy God. If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to remind you today that um, something that many of you know very well, some of you are getting to know maybe, you will come to find it out that we are all sinners who are saved by grace if you're in Christ, and I am nonetheless of that. In fact, I would feel most of the time like Paul who says, I'm the chief of all sinners. And so today as you hear these words, make sure that they are linked to the scriptures and that they come directly from the scriptures. If you can see the connection here, if it makes sense as the Holy Spirit guides us through the path today and the word, his word then let it be that this is not my words, but the words of the Lord today. And that is my prayer, that he would overcome me, that he would speak his truth. I would not stand in the way, but that he would use me just to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus. And so let us pray before we endeavor any further together. And let me ask for the Lord's help and leadership and for his will to be done, even in spite of me, a servant. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace toward us in Jesus. Father, we are weak, we are faulty, our hearts are wicked and sick. 
But Lord, you have sent Jesus to overcome the sin in us. So Lord, we know he defeated the enemy on the cross. He also overcame our sin and paid the price for our debt of sin with his own blood to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit would apply that grace to us, that you would show us how to understand your word, that we would be convicted of sin, that we might repent in the power and faith that you give us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if there be anyone in this place who does not yet know you, that you would bring them to faith and you would change them from dead to alive. For Lord, we know that you can do that and you alone. So Lord, we ask not only for your help and your guidance and your leadership, but we ask for your supernatural working in us to do what only you can do for your glory and for our joy this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're starting a new series for us. It's a continuation in the letter of Paul wrote to the Ephesians about 2,000 years ago. But it is a new series for us because we come to a part where at the end of this letter, we see that Paul is talking to the church it's an ecclesiological letter telling the church how to be and what to do. In fact, the first three chapters are pretty much saying, here's what to believe. This is an outflow. Everything we believe is an outflow of the good news about Jesus, how it all applies to us from before the foundation of the earth, all the way through redemption in Christ, all the way through our guaranteed uh, salvation when Jesus returns by us being guaranteed with the seal of the Holy Spirit on us. And then we see as we go through chapters 3, 4, I mean 4, 5, and 6, we see how that is lived out in relationships and the pragmatics of how we live our lives practically as the church, in relationships, together, how it changes us from thinking about race to the, a new way, a new type of humanity, one in Christ. We start thinking about family differently, we think about our, our marriages differently, our children differently, our work environments differently. And now we come to a place where if it were not so used to, uh, used to, if we weren't so used to it, it would feel awkward and weird. Because here we see that he makes a quick turn now to something that he has not broached quite directly in this letter, but he has hinted at all along. When he comes to the end here in verses 10 on, he brings up spiritual warfare in such a way that it should shock us a little bit. In fact, a lot of your translations will use the word finally for the first word in verse 10. But actually, it's more directly, a literal translation would be, all right, here's the remaining part. Not just finally, like a summation, but here's the remainder. I talked about your understanding of Jesus and how that applies to everything in the Trinitarian work of the gospel. Now he's saying he's done all the work showing us how that applies to our lives in the context of the church and in our relationships. And then he comes down here and he says, all right, now here's the remaining part. Here's the part that you don't want to lose track of. This is something that can, can get off kilter in you very quickly. And I think it has for many of us, especially in the West and today. But he brings us in in verse 10 and he says this. We're just covering three verses today as we begin this track through the spiritual warfare side of this letter. He says, finally, or here's what remains. It's a command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm reading it one more time. Make sure we really focus in on this. Here's the remaining part. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's the two commands. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Here's the reason. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He's, he's summing all that up right here in the next statement, saying it again kind of in a new way against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's not talking about authorities in the sense of our government. He's not talking about authorities in the sense of of the police. He's not talking about authority in the sense of humanity. He's talking about the evil work that is being done, led by those in heavenly places who have reign over this place, even though they've already been defeated, until Jesus comes back to make everything right and make everything new once again. This is what he's talking about there. So I want to just hit you with three major points today, and I want you to know that the way I've titled this sermon, I think, gives the point that we're trying to get to. And understand this, that next week, already a cliffhanger, we're going to talk a lot more about this armor of God and how we're going to accomplish the feat we're called to here how God has given us what we need to do this in Christ. We're going to focus more so on this truth today, that the enemy, the enemy, the devil, is real. That he is real. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what that means for us and how we are to get up and get in the fight against him that we're commanded to do so. And then we're going to talk about how we do that fighting. So let's talk first about the fact that some of us would give lip service to and even say that we believe that the enemy is real, but how many of us live lives in a stark contrast to that, that we do not actually walk with God in such a way that we rely on him as if the enemy really is real. So let's unpack this idea. First of all, I want you to see that he is formidable. He is greatly powerful, and so are his minions. I'm going to jump down to verse 12. I want you to see this in verse 12. Look at it with me again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, look what he calls them, rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And notice the word here that he uses. He doesn't use the word that we fight with them in such a way that we're talking about from across the battlefield, that we're shooting our, our arrows at him here, or that we are shooting our cannons over at him. Instead, he uses the word that we wrestle against him. There is no more fearsome battling than face-to-face, hands-on, tasting the sweat and blood of another when you fight. There is no more perilous way to fight. The reason that weapons of war have been invented is to keep people from getting that close to one another when they battle. That's the purpose. Because it is that gruesome and it is that horrifying and it is that detrimental. This should shock us a little bit that we are wrestling wrestling with heavenly powers that are beyond us. 
formidable, powerful. When you see angels, that's what these are, fallen angels. When you see angels show up anywhere in the Bible, you see people cower in fear before them. That when they speak, the earth shakes. There's nobody else like that in the world. These fallen angels are extremely powerful. Listen to what it says about their impact on us in Ephesians 2, just earlier. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, listen, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, causing chaos, and that all of us used to be enslaved to him. Martin Luther paints the picture so beautifully when he goes to Romans 6. We like to think that we are free in all things, but what he points out to us is the scriptures show us in Romans 6 that we are enslaved to our sin, which means we are enslaved to the enemy, and that God then comes and frees us from that and enslaves us to righteousness. Martin Luther puts it in a beautiful picture that you've heard me mention before if you've been here any length of time, that we are basically donkeys. He uses a much more crass term. We are donkeys and that Satan is riding us and directing our path and our sinfulness and that God comes along and thumps Satan off and takes control for our glory and our joy. And that is our salvation. He points to the fact that we are so sinful and we are so impacted by this formidable foe. And it's right from right here, verse 2 of chapter 2 in Ephesians following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the, air, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this word even here for him in chapter 6, verse 10, for the devil, is the word, the Greek word that you've probably heard of, diabolos. We get the word diabolical from it. But it actually means something a little bit different. It, it comes from the Greek root word. The verb is the root word of this. This is a noun when he calls him the devil. But the verb form means slanderer one who slanders, one who lies. So this is the terminology. The most prolific use in the New Testament for a name for Satan is actually the devil here, Diabolos. That Satan is a liar and a deceiver. Look at verse 11, chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, talking about the lost, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see the power there? He has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. So they may not see the truth of the gospel. That is power. He can do that to people who don't even know it's being done. And this is not some type of fantasy that's talked about in hyper-spiritual ways. This is truth of the Scriptures. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians there saying, clearly, it's the enemy that is the reason they can't see the truth. He's a deceiver. He's also scheming and cunning. Look at that verse 2 again. I'm mean, sorry, verse 11 again, where he says it this way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is who we're fighting, his schemer. He is cunning. It says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, other demons, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
their end will correspond to their deeds. That means that you could be influenced by what you think is a positive way to do something, a positive force to be reckoned with you think you might be becoming when you are being led by the enemy who, sh- who parades in a glorious light to deceive us. And you think, well, how deceitful can he be? I mean, any of us, if we just try hard enough, we can overcome him, right? You know, we could probably do well enough to notice that if that's happening. I mean, other people might be trapped in that, but not me, right? Not me. I don't remember which commentator I was reading when he gave this illustration. It is not my own, but let's just think about it for just a minute. The enemy has been around since before we were ever created. So he's had not just decades or hundreds of years, but thousands of years to work at his craftiness, his scheming, his deceitfulness. I don't know about you, and here's the illustration I've read somewhere down the line in my studies. Uh, It's true for me, too. I'm I'm decently good at math on the basic level. But I'm nowhere near a Newton, right? I'm nowhere near some of these great mathematicians of the land. But if I had 100 years to learn and study it, I'd probably get pretty good. If I had 1,000 years, I would be leaps and bounds above everyone that's ever existed that's ever been a mathematician, right? I mean, you don't have to have the mind if you can have the logic and trial and error for that long. Think about how great the enemy is at deceiving us. And think about how quickly he does not want us to recognize that and how good he probably is at doing that. He's a master at twisting the truth. Go back and read Genesis 3 when he twists the truth, when he says, God doesn't want you to eat anything in the garden. And they go, no, 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 he just doesn't want us to eat that particular fruit, right? So what looks good to the eyes because he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to to be all knowing like he is. Oh man, I could be all knowing like he is. Twist the truth. That's what he does in our ears to our hearts, mixing enough truth with his deception to make it seem plausible. And he's really, really good at it. You think you're not being deceived right now? Probably every one of us in here at some level and something is being deceived right now. We just don't see it. But remember this. Here's some good news. The Bible does not teach us to hold to dualism, but monotheism. I want you to understand what I mean by that, so I'll say it a different way. That's the theology talk, right? The Bible does not teach us to hold to dualism by saying that God and Satan are equal. This is untrue. It is not scriptural. It is not real. God is the all-powerful one who created all all things, and in him and through him were all things created. That means even the enemy, the devil himself, was created, and he does not have power anywhere near the power of God. He may be a powerful individual, but he's not omnipresent. He can seem omnipresent because of the minions of demons, fallen angels that are on his team, but he is not everywhere at once. So most likely, none of you in here are actually being messed with by the devil himself, but maybe by one of his minions. There's a great book about this we'll get to in a minute that I want you to pick up later and start reading. But this is the truth. Satan is powerful, but our God is all-powerful. That's the good news part of it at least. And our Savior, Jesus, is the King of all. He's Lord of all. And when He returns, every person, everything 
in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father because he is all-powerful, not the enemy. He is powerful. The enemy is very powerful. Compared to us, he is superhuman, greater than anything we see in the Avengers. But to the Lord, he is nothing but another part of his creation that he created under his power and he has full control. At any point in time, he can stop him. It's good news. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I want you just to worship in this moment. I think all too often in preaching and teaching, we just teach. We don't worship a whole lot. I want you to worship right now. I want to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And just listen and praise the Lord in your heart. And if you need to, let it go out of you, right? He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You hear that? Rulers and authorities like we just talked about. All things were created through him and for him. For him. And he is before all things, more important, preeminent, above all things. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace, by the blood of his cross. That's how he did it. Thank you, Lord. Praise him. Right now, give him glory some way. Yes, Lord. Praise you. And you, he goes on in Colossians 2, 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that we might be punished, condemned under his wrath for all eternity. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, in Jesus, in nailing Jesus to the cross, he set it aside from us and put it on him. Listen to this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The devil is done. He has no power over you if you're in Christ. He has defeated him and put him to shame. Why do you think he's so angry and ready to do anything to destroy the name of Jesus? Why do you think he wants to tempt us and persuade us and accuse us because he wants to steal any glory from God because he knows he's already been defeated in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Let it not be so in us, brothers and sisters. Let it not be so. Let us stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Let us be strong in the Lord. We're going to talk about that right now. This is how we do it. You see, the devil is real, and he is powerful, but he's already been defeated by Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That is good news for us. So now it's our turn to get in the fight against the enemy. I love this language. 
I love it because for some of us, it's hard to think about fighting. You may think, I'm not good at fighting. That's okay, your Savior's great at it. You may think, I don't like to talk about fighting. That's all right, but we're in a war either way. You know, I watched this movie. I can't remember the name of it. One of you might remember it and yell it to me, but uh, it's about some guys going over to Vietnam the first time they use these helicopters to go in. They go up to fight the enemy, and with them is a reporter that comes in. There's a part where, who's the main actor? I'm losing my brain today. Mel Gibson, thank you, Corbin. Mel Gibson, who, of course, is a great commander on the field, right? He's commanding this army. And at some point, they're getting overrun by the enemy. They're coming from all sides everywhere. And this reporter is taking pictures of all this the whole time. And he's kind of staying down and out of the way. And his dad and his granddad were both in the military. And at some point, Mel Gibson's first lieutenant comes in. I just remember him from Tombstone. Remember that movie? Can't remember his name either. But he stands there and he tells that guy to pick up a gun. And he throws a gun in his face. And he says, I'm a reporter. I'm not here to shoot. He's like, today you're in war. And he picks it up, and he does what has to be done, because he's at war. We are at war, brothers and sisters. There is no sitting on the bench for us. We are in the battle. We're either losing it and don't realize it, or we're in it and we're fighting. And there will be daily losses on our side. But I guarantee you this, we have a commander who's already defeated the enemy. They just don't know it yet. Not in a real way. So it's time to get in the fight against our enemy. And what we actually fight are the schemes of the devil. This Greek word here is methodia. Okay? Methodia. The methods. Actually better translated as strategies of the enemy. And he has an arsenal of these strategies. You may think it's only a couple. We're going to talk about the two kind of categories for that. But he has an arsenal of them. So let's make sure that we are careful not to lose the fight before we even get into the ring. I want you to understand a couple of things you need to know and think about. Number one, are these much longer in the faith than I? I read it all through the Puritans and through the Reformers and all the way back to Augustine say some of these similar things, the early church fathers. So I'm not having anything new to tell you. I'm telling you what we stand on the shoulders of the ones who've come before us. But here's the truth. Number one, we had to make sure not to overestimate the power of the enemy. And secondly, we had to make sure we don't underestimate the power of the enemy in this fight. We've got to make sure that happens first. Those are two errors we can commit that would be very bad for us to commit. Don't overestimate and don't underestimate the power of the enemy. C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about these enemies, these devils, he says, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, to over overestimate and underestimate the power of the enemy. And they hail a materialist, one who underestimates the power of the enemy, thinking, oh, no, I got this under control. It's all just natural things we're dealing with. And he says they also hail a magician, the ones who think it's all about the occult, the devil's in everything, the devil made me do it kind of stuff. He says these devils love either one of those extremes. They hail it with the same delight because the enemy likes to be in the darkness and not be seen for who he really is and what he's doing. By the way, C.S. Lewis, two books you should get for this series. You need to read these books. Begin reading them. One is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters. 
It's basically his musings of what it would be like for an older demon who's trying to instruct a younger demon about his client, the one he's been attached to, a human. And he tells him about how to work with his sinfulness in order to find ways to impact him. It is enlightening to how easily our sin can lead us astray. Let's talk about not overestimating the power of the enemy. Just briefly. I'm going to clue you in a little bit. I know down the south, it's different. When I lived more up north, I know you call it the north. It was still below the Mason-Dixon, just barely. But up north, people are on the, on the underestimating the enemy a lot, outwardly. Down here, outwardly, as a culture, we like to overestimate the enemy. The devil is not behind every bush. You've heard me say this before. It's worth saying again. Listen. The devil cannot make you do things you don't want to do. That's not how he works. He whispers in your ear to your heart, maybe, but you do the things you do because we are sinners at the core, because we want to do them. We cannot blame the enemy for our sin. Let's not give the enemy glory he does not deserve. Amen? That's what he's seeking. Let's not give it to him because we are the sinners. We're the ones who do what we do. So it's not the enemy that made me do it. I might have been tempted. I might have been accused. But it is not the enemy that made me do it. It was me that made me do it. I wanted to do it. He speaks lies into our hearts, but it's our hearts that are wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 states it clearly. I love the verse. I hate what it says. It's hard to hear. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Please, please right the wrongs when you're watching TV with your grandchildren or your children and they hear the words, follow your heart. No, follow Jesus. Bend your heart to Jesus. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is not trustworthy. That's why you can fall in and out of love 20 times before you ever get married. Because your heart is not trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. And I'm going to say this on the fly here. There, is a lot of, there are a lot of people who believe you can be possessed by the enemy, by the devil, or by a demon. And I believe that's the case for those who are not Christians. But there is not room enough in you, in your soul, for the enemy and God to reside. Does not happen. There's no place in Scripture that shows that. There's only the opposite of that. That people have a demon cast out of them, and then if they come to faith, no more worries about that. Because the Holy Spirit resides in you. And there is teaching, prosperity gospel teaching, it is all over the TV, all over the internet that tells you that your body, they try to use the Trinity as an example of how you can still have a demon in you so that you can get demons out of you. And they use ways to do that to get you to send money or just to fall in line behind them. They talk about how your body is a temple, right? Well, the temple of God, you have the, 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 the outer court and the inner court. Okay, the Holy of Holies. And oh, if you're a Christian, in the Holy of Holies, the Holy Spirit lives in there. And no, there's no, no demons can get in there. But in that outer court, you can have a demon in that part of your soul. 
That's bull. Nowhere in the scriptures. And if that's how you've believed, I'm here to tell you I love you. But I'm telling you it's bull because I love you too much to let that go on. It is not real. It is not true. You can't take a Trinitarian idea like that in the temple. This is in our bodies like a temple. What that means is that it's the living place of God if you're a Christian. It doesn't mean that you've got an inner court, an outer court, and a holy of holies. No, it's just a general metaphor. You cannot have a demon in you if you have Christ living in you. It doesn't happen that way. Christ shows up and the demon-possessed man comes to him and he says, the demon said, please don't cast us out, please don't cast us out. And he says, get out. And they leave. There's no competition here. He will not be in the same place with those who are disobediently trying to lead you astray. He will purge you of that at your salvation if you happen to have that going on. It's worth noting, worth telling, correcting in others. Don't let them live in fear of that. If you know somebody living in fear of that, it is not. Listen, it's your sinfulness that leads you to do the things you do, not some demon living in you if you're a Christian. Don't overestimate the power of the enemy. But also don't underestimate the power of the enemy. He is powerful, superhuman even. I'm going to give you my favorite story just because this is an opportunity for me to give you my favorite story. Aside from the Gospels, okay, the story of the Gospel, but Acts Chapter 19. I love this story. The sons of Sceva. You've heard it if you've been here around a little while. I love this story because it is so funny and so scary at the same time. And I'm not worried because I'm a Christian, right? But let's listen to these guys. Let's see what happens. So Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 16. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You hear all the problems right there. I'm telling you what to do by the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims. The first problem is they're not saved. They don't know Jesus themselves. They're trying to tap into God's power without falling under and following Jesus. Big problem. Let's see how it lays out. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know... And Paul, I recognize, but who are you? I bet the fear turned on right there. And the man in whom was fled out of that house naked and wounded. They talk about fighting. If you get into a fight and you run away with your pants beat off of you, you lost. Right? And that's exactly what happened here. They're not following Jesus. They don't know Jesus. They're trying to tap into the power of God without following and submitting to God. And that is probably the problem in a lot of our folks in the churches that claim to be Christians but aren't really followers of Jesus. And that is a dangerous place to live. You think you're safe because you know the name of Jesus, but if he is not yours and does not reside in you, it is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And the enemy is powerful. Look, here's the answer to that, though. Look back in verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It sounds like you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be strong, right? I wish that worked the way I would like it to for me. I'm feeling pretty weak, overweight, not feeling too good today, got a foot hurting, you know, like all the things. I'm like, be strong. Ooh, I feel better. I'm bigger. I'm like pie pie, right? Eat my spinach and I'm good. That'd be awesome. Amen? True? That'd be great if that's how it worked. Look, you don't notice it here, but let me clue you in a little bit to how this verb is stated. Be strong. It's a verb that is what's called a present passive imperative. Imperative means a command. And it means to be strong and continue being strong presently and on. Be strong. But the key is it's passive. So it's like be strong, but it's saying that you're going to be strong by somebody doing something to you. You don't do anything to be strong. That's weird, isn't it? He's commanding you to be strong but it's something that happens to you from outside to in, not from you doing it yourself. Look at it in context, thinking about that. Finally, be strong in the Lord. See? Clue it in. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, be strong by leaning into Jesus and trusting in Jesus and having faith in Jesus, not in your own abilities, but in the power and might of Jesus. Praise Jesus. Give him the glory. Lean into him. Don't stand up against the enemy and think, I got this, because you don't. You'll be like the sons of Sceva. Instead, stand up against the enemy and stand firm going, Jesus, I need you. Help me, Jesus. Take care of this for me, Jesus. Walk with me, Lord. Empower me, Lord, to overcome this temptation. We do not have enough power and ability within ourselves to overcome the enemy. So do not underestimate the power of the enemy, but also do not underestimate your all-powerful Savior who is Jesus because he has enough power. And when we lean into his strength, we lean into his strong might, we have what is necessary. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Same words are used in Ephesians 1, verse 19. I'm going to back up. Listen to this, verse 18 and on. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Those same words are the same words used here when he says, be strong in the Lord, that's the power, and in the strength, the great, in the strength of his might. Those three words, the same exact words. I don't believe that's on accident. That's a purposeful thing done by the Holy Spirit through Paul. The same strength. Listen, this is the strength. What is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words... Be strong in the Lord who's defeated death. Be strong in the Lord who has subjugated all authorities under his feet. Be strong in the Lord who now sits and rests his feet upon every power that ever existed because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in him, there's enough power. That's the good news. But lastly, we need to understand the strategies. Here's the strategies. I'm going to give them to you briefly. I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm going to give them to you briefly. 
And if you want to read better about this, I mean, you need to, if you don't own anybody's Puritan works, you need to go back and find this one. You'll probably find it for free if you Google hard enough. But if not, you'll buy it for like 10 bucks. It's by Thomas Brooks. Okay, Thomas Brooks. And it's called Remedies, Precious, wait, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he breaks these two things down. I'm about to tell you the schemes of the devil basically are temptation and accusation. And he breaks these down into 50 or 60 or 70 different ways in which it happens. I don't have time to get into. I'll give you one example each probably. But these two basic types of lies, temptation and accusation, Tim Keller says it like this. He says, in temptation, Satan is actually hiding God's holiness from you and how he hates sin. In other words, he tempts you by saying, hey, look at this great thing. You deserve this. You need this. You should have this. And he's basically trying to mask God's glory and holiness before you. He's trying to hide that. And he's hiding how much God hates that sin. He hides that from you, he says, and plays up the love. God wants you to have this. You should have this. In accusation, Keller says, he hides God's love from you. He plays up on God's holiness and his wrath on sin, and he hides God's love. In other words, hey, you're so horrible. You could never do this. You can't make it. So just go ahead and enjoy this. You're never going to get there. You keep failing. Just keep failing. Just walk in and enjoy it for now at least. God will forgive you, right? That's the things he speaks to our hearts, the enemy or his minions. So in other words, temptation, listen again, is used to get you to have too high a view of self. I deserve that. I'm good. I've worked really hard. Like, man, I'm, I'm good at this, right? So that you do the things you shouldn't do. That's how business leaders, executives, can go off and have some kind of tryst with someone of the opposite sex. And they can do that and think they've done nothing wrong because they feel like they deserve it because nobody knows how hard they work for that company. Nobody knows how strong they are and how much they've worked hard, how much pain and suffering, the sweat and tears they put into this. And so they have this high view of self. The other side is the accusation, right? The accusation is the enemy's way of leading you to hate yourself. Some of you know what I'm talking about because some of you live in this area. This is your guilty area. Maybe it's not thinking too high, you think too low. So you'll do the things you shouldn't do. So you just think, I keep failing, what's the point? One more time's not going to matter. Doing it again, that doesn't matter. Here's how we fight it. Number one, become self-aware. Become self-aware. Learn how Satan is tempting you. And here's the thing, he's fast and he moves quickly and he stays in the shadows. So as soon as you figure out one way he's tempting you or accusing you, you know what? He's already off to the next. He's already off to the next. But it is worth the fight. Become self-aware. Read Thomas Brooks's thing about how to fight the enemy in this way. It's so helpful. Read C.S. Lewis's book on that. It's so helpful. It's so helpful to see how we struggle and to learn how we might be being tempted. I find, every time I read one of those, I find new ways the enemy has his claws in me and how I can fight it. Secondly, and here's the real hopeful part. The gospel is our hope, and it's also our armor. Look at it again in these verses, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor, he says. Put, as a command, put on the whole armor. We're going to get into that next week about the armor of God. But here's what you need to know. The armor of God is the gospel. He's going to break it down into parts, but it's the good news about Jesus. Put on the armor of God. For temptation, it goes something like this. You've got to be reminded 
by the gospel. When you are being tempted, you run and say, Lord, remind me of the cross. Remind me of Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. Remind me why I need it. When you're tempted to do something you shouldn't do, when temptation comes, let's be reminded that we are so terrible and so sinful that God had to be the one to save us, that we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing I could do to save myself. Nothing at all. I am that bad. And if you think that you aren't that bad, we need to look long and hard in the Scripture some more because we are that bad. You may feel icky. Here comes the other side. Are you ready? That's the gospel truth. I am that bad that it took a holy, righteous, perfect, good, loving Savior to die on the cross to save me, to fall under the wrath of God, that he would be displayed on the cross to the point of death under the full weight and wrath of God on my behalf. That's how terrible I am, that I need that Savior. Remind me, Lord, that I am wicked and I do not deserve anything that I think I deserve. And this temptation is a lie. You know why? Because the accusation side of the gospel is this. Even in my terrible sinfulness, God loves me absolutely. Absolutely. Undeservedly we are loved absolutely. And we are completely accepted in Christ Jesus. I will never be more loved. You will never be more loved than you are right now. 10 million years from now in eternity, the love God has for you will not be more than it is right this minute. Do you hear that? He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. The only thing that will happen 10 million years from now is you'll understand it better and deeper than you do right now. But his love does not change. You're fully loved right where you are right now. So when the enemy comes at you and says, hey, you messed this up, you messed that up, you did this thing, so why are you trying? Just go ahead and do this other stuff that you kind of want to do. You know you do. You say, no, because it does matter, because even though I have failed, even though I am horrible, even though I'm a sinner, God loves me, and I'm going to love him back. Lord, remind me of your love. Show me the love that you showed for us on the cross by sending Jesus. Show me the love Jesus had for me on the cross as he was thinking of me when he died. That will change how you respond to the accusation. That will change how you respond to the temptation. And you will fall more in love with Jesus in that moment. And he will be glorified. And you will remain sinless in that moment instead of falling into temptation or the accusation. And God will get the glory and you'll be filled with joy that far outlasts, that far outlasts the momentary happiness you get from delving into that sin. So let us, let us fight the good fight for the glory of the Lord, for He deserves it. He should be famous. He should be made famous. We should be feeling the love and responding to our sin in a way that gives Him all the glory. The enemy is real, but our God is greater. Amen? And He has already won the battle in Jesus Christ. So get in the fight and stand firm be strong in the strength and might of the Lord. Stand firm in the gospel of his glory. Stand firm in Jesus, who's already stood firm for us. And let him receive all the praise and all the glory. Father, if you have not already worked in us, if there are some here who do not yet know you, then Father, I pray that you would bring them to faith today, that they would repent of their sin, they would turn to you. Lord, they would not leave this place until they have come to follow you. 
And Father, if there's anyone here who has sin they need to repent of, that there's accusations that have been beating them down and they need freedom from that, I pray now you would bring them conviction, you bring them hope, you show them the love and the mercy of Jesus, your Son, who died on the cross for them. Lord, we need you. Help us, Lord, be our strength. Help us, Lord, to walk in holiness, for you are holy, for your glory, for our joy. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.